Welcome to House of Data, a show exploring how data is influencing decisions at the most ambitious companies in housing. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Together, we will dive into how housing market participants are ingesting, organizing, and making decisions using data and the competitive advantages that follow. I am the Director of Data Strategy at Altos Research, owned by HW Media, and we supply some of the most dynamic companies in housing with unique intelligence across every housing market nationwide. You can learn more about Altos Research and this podcast by going to altosresearch.com or by sending me an email at alex at hwmedia.com. My first guest on House of Data is Zach Ronstadt. Zach is the VP of Strategic Operations at Meritage Homes and has spent the last 15 years creating a data and research team called Strategic Operations that supports their regional leaders with insights and data to make better decisions. Zach and I talk about building trust as a data team with decision makers and what that process looks like over time, developing the ability to influence decisions without being the decision maker, how to be effective in a data role, and what data has told Zach about evolving consumer preferences in new homes. Please enjoy this first episode of House of Data. Zach, it's great to see you and have you on the House of Data podcast for our, our first episode of the new show. I'm excited to talk about Meritage um, on the Builder Online uh, surveys. Meritage was the seventh largest home builder. You've done a lot with data, uh, especially using Altos data and lots of other different sources. So excited to dive into a whole bunch of stuff, but would love to start with kind of a preview of your role at Meritage and kind of the career you've had leading up to this role. Of course. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be your guinea pig today. Uh, I got a correction <laughs> out of the gate as of last year, we're the fifth largest builder uh, and we're working oh, diligently to try and maintain that space. Now, I, I've worked at Meritage for over 15 years in various roles, but I've always gravitated towards market research. I'm super passionate about it, uh, whether that's competitive intelligence or consumer research or product research. I, I always try and think if there's something that I can do to facilitate a better decision or, or get some added context or resources. So most of my job, whether I was an analyst in the division or I worked for Philippe in the original form of Strops, or as, as the person who now is um, the vice president of the strategic operations group, I always spend uh, a lot of time like just sitting and listening and seeing what's going on in the business and figuring out ways on how I can help bridge the gap between information and, and huge amounts of data and, and, and get, the, get those insights and that type of information out to the key decision makers. So they say, wow, this added context really helps. This added context makes us more confident. We can get a little more aggressive or we can uh, zag when everybody else is zigging, so to speak. So that strategic operations group, what's kind of the the mission of that group at Meritage? It's uh, a a simple way to put it is the market research function, but it, it encompasses so much more than just saying, oh yeah, we do research in a vacuum. When I say research, that covers you know competitive intelligence. It's kind of like Zillow on steroids, and it's it's catered to our business needs, in the and, and catered to the new home side mostly. But we do have a lot of research around resales. Uh, for example, the Altos data is dominantly resale focused, so that that's your plug into the multiple data sets that we end up using. Um, we also do a lot of work in the product research space to whether that's also figuring out what the best plan configuration is like a four bedroom or a four bedroom with a powder room. 
uh, or a five bedroom home or a five, four bedroom with a loft that's a single story, like those types of configurations and how they would live best. We do a lot of work with our product development group. And, and lastly, uh, spend a lot of time in the consumer research space to make sure that we get the voice of the customer in the front end of the business where, where decisions might be made around acquisitions or the land strategy uh, or, or the broader strategy about who we want to be in a future sense. So over your, your 15 years at Meritage, what have you learned about designing and organizing a group and a market research team that can be most effective? Yeah. Uh, as I've, as I've gotten, uh, through various roles of working in, as an analyst or a, a manager or a director and now a vice president, I spend more time now more than ever trying to make sure that what uh, my team does has a high degree of trust as an output, whether that is the relationships that we cultivate with the division or a region uh, or even corporate leadership. Trust is really important. I want to make sure that I'm transparent. I'm not hiding anything. I'm here to facilitate a dialogue through research and data and insights. Trust within my team is also really important. So I want to have quick and sincere dialogues with everybody. And we got about 15, 18 people on the Strops team that are all throughout our entire footprint, whether you know they have a product research focus or a consumer research or a field research focus. But it's really important to me that, that when problems arise, that there's someone out in, let's say, Nashville, that that division leader trusts that can come to us and say, hey, I have a problem. Can you help me solve it? And, and that, that baseline state is a curious mind from an operator. They, they say, hey, I have a problem and I trust the data group to solve it with me. That is not an easy ask uh, as a corporate function. And uh, it's something I constantly put res resources into, uh, training my team up, engaging with the, the leadership throughout the organization as well. A lot of dialogues. Now, the, the flip side is, if you don't have really good research backing those types of dialogues, it's, you know, you're just a talking head, right? So behind the scenes, I have really great people, a uh, small team back in Scottsdale that they, they create the data, they crunch it, they analyze it, they standardize it, they create systems. So when I finally get to those types of dialogue or, or a regional leader can have that type of discussion about that problem, it's quick. It's like an overnight turnaround. Everybody trusts the data. They trust the individual, so we can pivot so fast. We can we can make decisions on a dime. Like uh, last year, when interest rates were going up, uh, there was really tight alignment across all levels of discipline in the business that we were staring into the barrel of a correction. And the faster that we pivoted, the faster that we recognized that our competition was pivoting as well, the faster we realized we could get through it. And the, we made pricing adjustments just like every other builder, but we weren't lagging uh, the good market conditions that were to follow in January, February, March. We, we were kind of surprised that we were well positioned to capitalize on the selling season. And we had great, a great uh, month in January. Uh, we weren't, we weren't, what was funny is that we weren't actually ready because we pivoted so quickly. We were so closely aligned. We weren't 
ready for the upside that would come from the backside of pivoting so quickly. So I, I really value that sort of alignment that's, you know, 15, over 15 years in the making where, where the company looks at this sort of stuff. They look at our work, our data, the trust built relationships that we have over time. And as long as I can stay in front of it, uh, we can make really good decisions really quick and get through, you know, any choppy waters in the business. And on the backside, we can, we can get the customers what they want at a price point that they accept and a product that they love. Yeah, that story of being able to quickly switch as the market comes back feels like a great example that, or a great story that you would tell to encourage your company to become more data-driven. And this is a, an example where that data-driven philosophy pays off. But you mentioned it being 15 years in the making. I can't imagine it was like that. 15 years ago when you joined, how did you uh, kind of shape and uh, not just your strategic operations team and market research, but the broader company to embrace and focus on data as a, as a core part of decision-making? Yeah, I've, uh, I've benefited from top-down leadership that uh, has a high acceptance rate for this. Uh, my current boss, he loves to talk about the data. We have regular one-on-ones and cover a ton of things. And a lot of that information from his perspective, uh, he, he incorporates that stuff immediately, on, almost sometimes to the point where it gets me a little uncomfortable, but I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate the urgency of integrating it and making decisions so fast. Um, my prior boss, Philippe, who is now the CEO, he started the strategic operations group and uh, he, he did a great job back in the 2008 to 2012 era at the bottom of the market, stressing the importance of how we can be a better company through data. Um, even my predecessor, Wayne, I, I think he did a fantastic job of building up a department and handing, handing it off to me uh, and really where I, where I needed to go with it was to make sure that the department was at a point where we were able to pivot like how we did with this, this last interest rate hike. Uh, but the top-down support, I, I appreciate it every day. I run a lot and exercise and, you know, that's like kind of one of the thoughts that always comes in my mind. I'm just like, man, it's, I'm really fortunate to be in a culture uh, uh, the executive group is data focused. The field is data focused. Um, you know, as long as I can meet their ever changing needs where they're like, Hey, I want more data. I'm like, yeah, okay. Let, let me see what I can do. That that's a good spot to be in. And uh, I'm grateful for it every day. Do you think that has to come top down within a, within an organization? So for an organization that doesn't use data to the same degree, do, do you think that needs to come from the top or is there some kind of uh, uh, like ground level or team level data drivenness that can evolve and grow within the company? Uh, both. And the reason, reason being is top down, having top down support, a really open mind, a curious mind, even Philippe's predecessor, Steve, he was very data driven, very, very focused on this. Uh, so it's always, it's been that way for over 15 years at Meritage. So the top-down support only helps. 
Now, bottom up, and that's where my responsibility is. I was in the division, uh, supporting a division president before I was recruited into corporate for for more national scope. But uh, I can imagine that there are certain companies out there in real estate where at the local level, there might be a fantastic researcher that has a really tight box. And having regional leaders, company-wide corporate leaders saying, wow, we, we need to upgrade this. And they look at those types of people and they facilitate those environments for their growth. Those companies have nothing, uh, nothing to lose, but everything to gain by facilitating those opportunities for those individuals. If not, I'll be happy to recruit them on my team. I'm sure they'd love to join. Um, you talked earlier about a data team's ability to influence being really important. As a data team, you're not the key decision maker for lots of large investment or key corporate decisions, but you can influence those decisions. How do you go about influencing and bringing a data-driven story to the decision, even if you're not the core person making the decision? So this is where that pre-existing relationship of trust that you built up is really important, right? I'm just going to assume that we have uh, that in place. And if we don't, we need to work through it, whether it's an individual discussion about, hey, where the pain points are, uh, is there something wrong with the way I'm looking at the data? Am I looking at the market wrong? I, I, I just want you to get to, as a leader, as a decision maker, to to get to the point where you realize I'm I'm thinking in your best interests. I'm thinking about how I can get you successful today, as well as two or three years from now when a community might be open. Um Getting to that point where you have that baseline trust level relationship is from a researcher perspective is super important. That's like 80% of the battle. Now, the other 20% is, is in the moment, staying quiet, listening, being patient, hearing truly what a leader needs in order to be successful. And sometimes, uh, the urgency of this business really doesn't allow us to slow down and we can step in it that way. I always love the adage, you got to go slow to go fast or go slow to go far. That requires a lot of listening and collaboration. And uh, sometimes the data in a pure sense is, it feels like you want it to be the whole narrative, but it's it's not. It, it should feed into the broader perspective, like how a department would feed into a broader perspective for leaders. So what does land say? What does sales say? What does uh, marketing say? And what does the research say? Put it all into a big pot. You get a lot of perspective, right? That That is where you want to be. You don't want to say, do the research in a vacuum. You don't want to say, it's this or no other option. You want it to be part of a broader spectrum of context. So you found that the data by itself is less helpful than data plus anecdotes or stories or other data points from other parts of the organization also contribute and help in a big way. Absolutely. Um, cause, <laughs> cause most of those departments, they got to take the information that we would present and they got to run with it. So if they don't buy into the information, I would like to know, and I'd like to know why. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like a like a checking your work. Like if your data doesn't line up with the rest of your team, one of you is missing a some some part of the story. 
yeah, good way to put it. Like, you know, anything unchecked is uh, somewhat dangerous. So I, I kind of want to know where I'm wrong. Yeah, certainly. So within a data role, like to be successful, it sounds like it's a lot of, obviously you need to know about data and signal for noise, finding accurate sources, but a lot of it is around EQ, knowing who the right person is to bring a story to. How do you develop that EQ over time to know how to develop these key relationships? I'm going to start with a confession that I'm not the best individual at EQ in a natural sense. And uh, I used to get in it with people that I worked with and uh, not listen to them. So I learned the hard way about the value of EQ. I don't even think I figured out what EQ was until I was 30. Um, And I stress anybody who's listening to this podcast, go read books on EQ now while you can. If this is new to you, just like Google um, emotional intelligence, find a book that you can gravitate towards and just start reading it. Um, I had to learn the hard way, but I also benefited from uh, a few professional coaches and they, they helped me along the way with resources. I'm sure there are so many more things now on YouTube or, you know, you just Google this in or, or you jump on Amazon and you just start looking around or even on LinkedIn learning. There's probably things that exist today that I didn't have 15 years ago. Uh, so I had to go hunt down things myself. Like one of my favorite initial books, and I give this to a lot of people on my team still when they struggle with these very concepts. Uh, it's called The Hard Truths of Soft Skills. And the book has aged really well. There's always just a little bit of something in that book that uh, resonates with everyone. And it's different because EQ is messy. It's not like data. Uh, but building that muscle to slow down and listen early on pays back dividends, especially when we're dealing with huge amounts of data, complex business issues, something that might not be so black and white, something that might need to be a little gray, and that's okay. Something that isn't just science or isn't just art. So EQ has a big place at being effective in those types of discussions. If you just give a number, you just say, hey, the number is 12. You know, it's like, okay, what am I going to do with 12? You're getting paid to come up with 12, right? You're getting paid to provide that as a conclusion. So does 12 make sense to their business? Do they agree with 12? Ask them those types of questions. Is there an issue with 12? Uh, What does another department think about 12 as a number? Or maybe it's another thing. It's the letter A. But that was your conclusion and you have to deliver on that and build value in that so that they can believe it and operate to it. If you can't communicate to them like that, it's, it's like you're a robot at that point. You're just a advanced data crunching algorithm or something that AI could easily replace. But to go deeper gets you so much further ahead of the curve and it allows those opportunities for better decisions. What goes into being a um, effective data leader for a team like this. So is that a, most of the stuff we've talked about is more outward. How does my team communicate outward and what's required of that is, is it more, is this question more inward about how the Strops group needs to function? Yeah, internally. So if, if you're, if you're wanting to build a data team one day at your company that either does exist and it's really small or doesn't exist and you want to go create one, how would you 
organize an effective data team? And then how would you think about your role as that leader to make sure it's effective? So I'm going to start with the soft answer, and then I'm going to get a little technical on the back end. Shouldn't come as any surprise. I'm going to use the word trust, right? Started with trust. Trust internally is super important as well. And most of the people that I work with, if I can uh, make sure that they, they know that I'm looking out for them, that loyalty between the two of us over a long period of time is super important. Um, I trust my team to make better decisions than I could out in the field on a daily basis. So even though in some conversations I might come in hot, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I don't under- understand it. This data is wrong. Um, I'm finding myself more lately saying, okay, well, what would have to be true from your perspective to for this data to be accretive to the business? That's a different conversation than me coming in hot. That That's me kind of giving up control on my end and, and trusting them more to say, I, I will value your perspective. And maybe sometimes they're right. Sometimes the deal uh, community and acquisition is still what we saw initially in the discussion or what I saw initially is problematic. But But those types of discussions are super important to me because it sets up a better rhythm for the next community we're looking at, whether it's an open existing community that's underperforming and we got to troubleshoot how to get there, or it's understanding spec feature level or what the customer needs or an acquisition, um, try, trying to create that space to slow down uh, and, and let me as a leader ingest their perspective and, and literally consume it and hear them out is really important more now than ever. Earlier on, and you talked about this kind of change in your management style, but when you would say something as you know weird or looks funny, instead of just saying that, you might ask your the person on your team questions that you were asking in your head that led to that conclusion. Where asking these questions, they'll naturally kind of lead towards hopefully a conclusion that you came to versus just saying it out outright. Is when did you make that change and and why? I think I'm doing that as much as I possibly can, but I'm, I'm currently building the muscle memory for it. And I, uh, I, I feel like it would have been easier to do maybe 10 years ago, but I, I'm a little set in my ways after doing market research for 20 years. So I, I constantly need to keep myself in check. Talk to me in two years. Let's, let's see if I'm better at that two years from now than I am today. I mean, even I personally have noticed that whenever I start by just asking questions, versus making statements, things go way better. We come to better ideas and there's usually a piece of the story I'm missing that I can help fill in that way. Com- completely agree. And that's why listening is so important. Yeah, I completely agree. You talked earlier too about there are steps required to make to get a high utility from the data that you're looking at. So maybe from a data science perspective, how are you going about making sure your data has a really high utility accuracy and is telling the correct story with the, with the framing that you need. I'm going to lean on a little more technical, more hard than soft on that response. So we do have people who are focused full time on making sure that the data has a high degree of integrity behind the scenes. Um, there's a lot of checks and within that small group, they kind of check each other's work as well especially when it comes to new data sources and we're in that pilot phase on something. We really don't want to release anything to the world too prematurely as as much as we want to. Sometimes the insights are better just out in the field like tomorrow. 
but we've learned that that's an easy way to step in it. Sometimes you can, you can have too much information in your platform and it starts to become diminishing. So like constantly auditing that stuff, being apprehensive, slow to roll things out, uh, collecting feedback in, internal to the team before you start broadcasting stuff. Like sometimes a new concept, it's okay to take three years to do stuff with it. It's okay to be slow because then you're figuring out what it means. But if you just force stuff out, sometimes you can really step in it, especially I, I've stepped in it with closing data, <laughs> listing data, new home data, consumer research. Like I've made so many mistakes over my career. So being slow, cautious, diligent, making sure that what we're doing is in, in the right mind of the decision makers in the business, as well as what the customer needs in order to feel like long-term down the road, we're giving them the best value per our strategy. That Cautious is good. Cautious is good. Yeah, there's a, it's funny you mentioned that. There's this book, uh, The Manager's Handbook, that uh, the author of which came on my other podcast. And um, one thing he talked about was that exact concept that going slow in, in an organization to make changes or add new processes or change existing ones is generally better because if you are, if you manage to go faster, you can always add things. That's much easier. Whereas if you start adding a whole bunch of stuff and you have to take things away, it can often be discouraging and send the wrong signal to your team. Especially in a group like this, which is small, but can influence so many people in different ways. Making, making sure that at least internally, our group is aligned before we, we go out. Uh, making sure that we all think about the utility the same way on, on a new data set. Making sure that we're all looking at the market research the same way. Uh, if if one region is making a bunch of custom exhibits, what, why are they not working with the same resources that everybody else is? I, that's that's something that makes me really curious. I like okay, I'm seeing you. Uh, it's an analyst. I'm seeing you make this apartment exhibit over and over and over again, where you compare our townhomes against apartments and the monthly payments associated with it. Why do you view, view that as important? Analyst says, well, the apartments are across the street. And we learn from two or three other communities that we get people from those apartments. So I really want to understand how, how close the livability is. Is it that next logical step for a renter to own one of our townhomes? Or is there, is there like a huge gap between the two where maybe an apartment might be a class C apartment and it's $600 a month for a renter there and we're offering a townhome at $2,200 a month. If there's that big gap, we've learned that we don't get those customers. We get them from somewhere else. But if the gap is really narrow, like it's a class A apartment, their their new new two-bedroom units are leasing for $1,800 a month. We have that townhome for $2,200 a month. Suddenly, uh, there's there's that like, it, it's close enough where it's aspirational. And, and so those types of opportunities where you just spend 30 minutes on a Zoom call or something, and you just walk through that stuff, you, you get these like added perspectives that say, well, maybe we should think if anybody else in the team could benefit from this perspective. Maybe, maybe uh, there's a problem happening in another market right now that could be better solved. We could create better insights if we had this exhibit scaled up and taking it back to the work that that analyst would be doing and coming up with this custom template. It, it's hard because 
they don't benefit from the scalability of the corporate resources. So giving it to corporate to vet it, scale it up, the analyst, the analyst feels super good that they contributed to the broader corporate initiative, which I, I always like hearing. I'm like, yeah, you know, that person's work was amazing. Um, the flip side is everybody else benefits from that unique perspective. Uh, we've been very, you know, more so now than ever, we're very standardized with our approach, but that also is representative of a very closely aligned research department. How do you foster that curiosity within your team? So if someone's going down a, a rabbit hole on some piece of data, how do you encourage that more and then make sure it's recognized when it does happen? Um, natural enthusiasm for the job helps. Yeah, certainly. I'm like, after 20 years in the business, I have a natural level of enthusiasm every day. I'm like, I love my job. And I, I look at that in the interviewing process. If they're, whether, wherever they're at in their career, uh, whether they're deeply passionate about the subject content or not, that's like, it's like a hiring prerequisite because that curiosity is, is an end result to that passion. So if they're enthusiastic, they're going to dig in, they're going to try and understand things more. They're more focused about the project versus, you know, just the paycheck that that's really important. And, and it's, it's been slow to move the group into that space. Like I would say it takes, took seven years or eight years to move it into that space. But I would say now the vast majority of the people on our team, they're, they're professionals in research. They love what they do. Uh, they're really focused on just digging in and they, they, they like, they, they, they get a certain sense of energy out of getting deeper on these going deeper on these sort of uh, challenges in the business, which frankly, they, they change all the time. There's like the macro macro narrative that changes, like where the United States is relative to the world and where a state is relative to United States uh, politically or, or economically. San Francisco is not the same as Orange County and, and understanding why those two narratives are different uh, is is different now than where it was even two or three years ago. So that's changing all the time, but our business is constantly changing. Five years ago, we were more aligned with a move-up builder than where we are today. We're more more of an entry-level builder that tries to create a uh, slightly higher quality product in the entry-level space. That, that's our live now value proposition is to be transparent, show a really good model, um, and make it attainable for the customer. That's important. So we were looking at deals differently two years ago than we are today. And we'll probably look at it differently two or three years from now. With the local narrative too, like how a submarket builds out, you know, 10 years ago, there was, a, there was certain submarkets in Texas, like Katy, for example, in Houston, was a very active housing market, but now has since built out. So where does all that demand go? Where else in Houston is a submarket that has great schools and great master plans and also freeway access? Is it north or west or south of Katy? So understanding that locally and the competitive landscape within that too creates these constantly changing narratives, macro, internal to the business, as well as locally. Um, so what we were dealing with Let's just take it back to that apartment exhibit. What we were dealing with maybe three or four years ago, if we had that apartment exhibit now, now 
if we had it then as an initial idea and we have it now, those would be two completely different exhibits, but one built off of the other to change with that ever-changing environment. Yeah, we've talked before about a lot of your role is deciding or figuring out how consumer preferences for homes are evolving over time. How do you use data to identify how those preferences are changing? It's just a, a weird thing for me to answer because we are using the data all the time to pivot. And like I said, it's, it's whether it's you know, competitive intelligence or consumer research or product research, you really need to have it as integrated in the business as much as possible. That's not just with people, but that's with systems so that it's like really democratized. You know, we're, we're benchmarking ourselves all the time to the market. We're benchmarking ourselves to a new analysis, same format that we did a year ago, so we can track what changed. And for example, if you did product research three or four years in a row, you can start trending things out where you can start seeing consumer preferences going from, wow, everybody in Texas is building two-story box plans to now smaller one-story plans. Let me look at the consumer research. Why is that? And the consumer research, which is also the same report or similar report we've been sourcing for years, uh, we realize that things are getting so stressed on affordability. A four-bedroom, one-story is really a preferred alternative to Texas than maybe five or seven years ago where a large two-story, a value box, started was a lot more uh, in the market. So, so like those little things, it, it's just you got to stay on top of it. Uh, you, regular integration with our systems, like we benchmark how we perform in the market with our own sales reports, our own communities, do postmortems, you know, hold, hold me accountable to an acquisition that might take seven years to go from, uh, you know, the actual initial purchase to the sellout of the last home. I want to be held accountable for how we st stacked up in the market so that for the next deal, I can be a little bit better. Those sort of things where you're constantly evaluating yourself, you're, you're trending things out, you're trying to build in consistency, trying to integrate with the business, it creates those opportunities for you to figure out those inflection points where you need to pivot. And the second that you need to pivot, you just start letting the world know, hey, I noticed this funky thing in the relationship uh, of this one report. This is new this year. The last two times, you know, we saw the number 11. I'm going to stick with this. We last two times we saw the number 11. But this year it's number 12. Just to let you know, we don't know what 12 means, but we're going to dig into it and report back. At least now it's out and everybody's starting to think about it. Um, it you know, that at that point, it starts becoming a conversation that's like the next layer deeper. That's, that's where a custom project starts going in, where you get a really curious person where their full-time job is like to understand that. It's like last three years or last two years, it was 11 and the third year it's 12. I want a 40 page deck on this. And I want you to beat everything to death in that one number. And, and there's, there's a lot of people that are like, yeah, you know, I'm going to dig in and really understand this. This is where hiring the right people gets important because, you know, now they're excited about this special project. And it sometimes I'd actually say a lot of times with those changes, uh, a lot of times we realize it's like it's like a minor change. Maybe it just requires an update, but there's like one or two times out of 10 where it's a big thing, where it could be you're starting to track the next COVID or a generational shift or, or something around the supply metrics. And so keeping like beating the pavement constantly is super important to me. 
Yeah, what's an example of something that went from 11 and became 12 in the last kind of couple years here? Uh, I think it went from three to 30. Let's put it that way. Um, single family rentals. I, I would say single family rentals are a really big, big piece of the business now. Not, not so much for us, although we work with single family rental operators, we'll build the house for them. And it's a, it's a small portion of our business, but you know, we, we think it's actually a really accretive piece to the business long-term. There is a, uh, th- this was in an incubation stage before COVID really small. And now it's a huge part of the, of all real estate. It's like a third component of how we look at supply. It used to be just new homes, resale, MLS, future lot supply. And now you got to look at rentals. So we started to pick up on that a year or two ago. And I, I actually bought some data through Altos in this space. It's been awesome data to use. Um, although I, I was quick to roll it out into the company. And so a lot of people didn't know that we had rental data, but a lot of people wanted to know, hey, what are single family rentals going for? Do you even have that data? Does the data exist? I'm like page 12 of the report. Uh, I should stop. I should I should let go of the 12 pun at this point. It's starting to get weird. Let's say page 20 of the report. We actually use that data to see how our townhomes are stacking up against single family rentals now or a, or a single family home that we're building in a 7% mortgage environment. Are we even close to the way that rentals are being presented? So, so those sort of things, I, I want to understand more about that market. I want supply relationships, demand relationships. I want to understand that customer more. Because there's a real customer that's different than our customer. And where are they at in their life? Um, it's it's kind of like, well, the, the resale market is just so squeezed. There's not a lot of listed inventory. As of uh, July 20th, 2023, there's less listings now on the MLS than there was a year ago when we were going into a uh, circumstance of excess supply. Where is that inventory? How does that inventory uh, who has that inventory? Like, how is that inventory actually being used? Is it just millennial buyers that are finally at the peak stages of home purchasing because they're in their late 30s, early 40s? Um, they're they're trying to buy their their homes for their families that are in this growing stage. Some of them on the younger end or on the older end, their kids are going to high school, so good school districts are important. They need a little bit more space. They might be moving up. Is it that, or is it is it single family mm-hmm. rentals? that's keeping the supply situation shallow. And I know a lot more about the millennial customer through our research over the last decade than I do know about single family rentals. And so now I want to spend some time in that space. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's just kind of like where my mind goes from a curious standpoint on this data. And like, you know, what, what are things that have changed and what do you know versus what you know that you don't know? So maybe you'll get to a stage down the road where you're like, yeah, at least now I know what I don't know from three or four months ago. Okay. Now what do I know that I don't know today? And that could be something else. What are some unique characteristics of millennial buyers that you've been able to identify through data? <laughs> this was, this was a while back. But everybody, there, there was a lot of consensus when the millennial, let's call it millennial wave of home buyers were just starting. And this is like almost 10 years ago now. And at this, at that point, millennials were still living in really cool locations in scale. And, you know, they were mostly not married yet, but they were about to get married. I think the average age was in the late twenties and now it's in the mid thirties. 
and everybody's like, yeah, millennials want to be in these urban locations. They want some super cool stuff. Let's look at, you know, let's look at condos, stack flats, things like that. And I got, I got all this data. I, I did a deep dive on millennials and turns out they wanted the same thing that their parents were living in. They wanted a safe neighborhood. They wanted to be in the suburbs with a four bedroom house. And it was like, it was like such a, just, it was like a blind flash of the obvious, but it was such a massive disconnect too between our preconceptions on millennials, which is where they were at and where they were about to be in the next five years. And I was just like, man, if I, if I could just help create a quality house for them, I would do so much good, so much good. Uh, versus trying to to torture myself into these this infill strategy, you know, it's like the infill, look, there's plenty of buyers for infills. If anything, the infill is really strong. It's it's a really good market segment to be in. But I feel that providing someone a backyard through this type of research and data. Uh, a good four bedroom house in a good school district where where people can have a family is is what the data was leading us to at that point, although it was really weird um it was like yeah maybe maybe we should just kind of clean you know focus on what a really good entry level home should be versus you know this this more shotgun approach to millennials that were more infill Zach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing about building data teams and even personal life and how homeownership is evolving. Uh, super fun to get to chat with you as always. So thank you for sharing your time. Oh, this was great. And it's been my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to House of Data. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review and introducing the show to a friend in data to help more folks discover the podcast. For more information about Altus Research and the podcast, Check us out at altusresearch.com or send me an email at alex at hwmedia.com.